Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 19 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Saul's Changed Life and Peter's Powerful Ministry, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 43. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, first of all, we're going to see lived out uh, the statement Paul himself would later write in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, everything is new. And so he's going to start acting entirely differently. He's going to be boldly, courageously preaching the gospel of Christ. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to be determined to continue. Um, He's going to be eventually welcomed into the church in Jerusalem, though with some hesitation on their part. Um, And we're going to see just the way he's going to grow more and more as a Christian and more and more powerful in the spirit, how there was no time to waste, that God got him going immediately preaching. And it was his preaching and his ministry that proved to everyone that the conversion was genuine and then made him the number one human being on the hit list for Satan. I really believe Satan slash all the demons and then their henchmen, Ananus, Caiaphas, any of the others, uh, that they their number one priority was shutting him down. Uh, And so uh, we're going to see his changed life. Meanwhile, we're going to go back to Peter. And there's a bit of a transition here. This is kind of uh, this chapter and Acts 10 and 11 uh, will focus on Peter. And then he and 12 as well. Then he will kind of drop off. And then we're going to focus on basically Paul the rest of the book. So this this begins the last Peter stretch. Uh, and we're going to see some uh, some of the effects of Peter's ministry as well. So these two great apostles, uh, Paul and Peter, uh, we're going to see them at work in this chapter. Well, let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 9. I'll pick up in the middle of verse 19 through verse 43. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. 
Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Andy, what's the connection between this section and the Lord's statement about Saul's life in verses 6 or in verse 16? Yeah, so he is, uh, he's got work, to, uh, work for um, Paul to do, Saul to do. Uh, it, it's right away. And that work is going to involve a significant amount of danger for him and persecution. And so we see pretty much right away the forces of, 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 uh, that are hostile to the gospel uh, turn on him and want to crush him. And this is just interesting. It just shows um, fundamentally what, what some have called institutional sin, sin mm -hmm. that's woven through um, social structures that if one individual gets converted, it's still there. And they'll turn on that guy and crush him. So you can imagine some CEO of a company that's been doing unethical, immoral, sweatshop type things. Individual gets converted, the shop, that, all that stuff's going to still go on. They'll just turn and destroy him. Hmm. And so we see that Paul is going to is going to start preaching boldly, and his former allies and cohorts and friends, I guess, uh, are going to turn on him and want to kill him. And his life is going to get hard immediately. What does verse 20 teach us about Saul's life immediately after conversion? He began preaching. He started preaching right away. And so here's a man that uh, has a wealth of biblical knowledge. We're going to see in his writings uh, just the incredible depth of understanding uh, that he had of the Word of God, but he needed the light of Christ to make it all um, makes sense because the spirit of Christ is the testimony of prophecy. And so for him to be able to see finally in the words of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any of these or the law of Moses, to see Christ in all of that, now mm -hmm. it all made sense. So remember, he's fasting for three days. God is speaking to him. The Holy Spirit is poured out on him and he starts making sense and he starts preaching it in the synagogue in uh, Damascus. And this is the beginning of his to the Jew first ministry, to go reason with them. He also had had a great mentor, though he didn't think of him at the time, in Stephen. He's heard Stephen uh, reasoning powerfully from mm. the scripture, and no one was able to stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. And so he's basically carrying on Stephen's ministry. Now, you mentioned this ministry pattern, the Jew first and then to the Greek. How did Saul's ministry in the synagogues set a pattern for his future ministry? And what was the initial reaction to Saul's preaching in the synagogue? 
Okay, so synagogues were gathering places for Jews. Um, obviously, they had that one place of worship called the temple, but most of the people throughout their, their lives were going to be in their own communities, and they needed a place to gather and read the Scripture and pray together and worship together. And that's what the synagogues were. And uh, they were really just congregationally led, and so individuals would come, and any Jewish man there could get up and make a statement or encourage the brothers or say something. And uh, he had that freedom as a Jew, and he gets up and starts talking about Jesus. And he's proving that Jesus is the son of God. And they're like, well, we didn't see this coming. Uh, they, they, they had heard about Saul too. They fully expected a zealous Pharisee. And, uh, you know, just in the pattern of, of legalistic Judaism that they knew, they, they expected that. Instead, they're hearing things they never mm. thought were coming. And so he begins testifying and proving from Scripture that Jesus is the Son of God. And, again, it must have blown blown their minds up. And, and yet I believe in every place there's always some that listen and some that are converted. And so he probably had some conversions right away. What does it mean that Saul increased in strength? And how might his ministry in verse 22 also remind us of Stephen, like you mentioned a few moments ago? Okay, so he grew in strength. He grew in power. I would say uh, there's a certain confidence that's in him. Uh, He already feels the surging power of the Holy Spirit within him. Things are getting clearer and clearer from Scripture. His arguments are getting more forceful. His confidence is going up. His fearlessness is going up. And so he's becoming more and more uh, powerful in the Lord and in this ministry God has given him uh, to do. And again, I I just, because I'm I'm memorizing Ezekiel right now and going through it, but God tells Ezekiel, I'm going to make you as hardened and obstinate as they are. I'm going to make your forehead like the hardest stone, Hmm. harder than flint, and you're not going to yield. So do not be afraid of them, though you're surrounded by briars and thorns and live among scorpions. So that's hostile Jews who do not want to listen to Ezekiel. I think the same thing's going to happen to Paul. So he begins his ministry there in the synagogue, and they're amazed, they're stunned. But that's not going to last long. Same thing with with Peter and and John. And the first time they hear them speaking, they're like, wow, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Yeah, that's the initial response. By the next chapter, they're overtly persecuting. So at this point, they're marveling, they're amazed, they don't know what to make of it, and Saul's just more and more confident and powerful in his knowledge of the Lord and of the Scripture. Like you mentioned, it doesn't take long for an extreme reaction to Saul, and we see that in the reaction he experiences in Damascus. Why does Luke include Saul's escape from Damascus, Mm -hmm. and what image does it give of Saul and the outcome of his ministry there? Well, again and again, we see this. You know, Jesus says very plainly to his enemies in John uh, chapter 8, you're of your father the devil. I mean, that's an incredible thing for him to say, but he Mm. said, you're of your father the devil. And the reason I know this is you want to kill me. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. He's a liar and the father of lies. So the combination of lies, doctrinal lies, and murder is going to hunt Paul the rest of his life. They are immediately going to want to kill him. And this this urgency to kill him, we're going to see as a major theme in the rest of the book of Acts. The various attempts made on his life, the assassins, the ones that are going to fast until they can finally kill him, you get the sense of a almost a demonic panic to shut this guy up. 
Like, do you not understand? You could see the demons saying within themselves in their demon meetings, what kind of damage this guy's going to do to our dark kingdom? Mm. Oh, he did incredible damage to their dark kingdom, but they couldn't stop him. And so fundamentally here, they're conspiring to kill him, and he has to escape. Um, he he learned of their plan, and that we're going to see that also when he's arrested after Acts 22 and uh, uh I guess a nephew finds out about the plan to assassinate. And so there's always just enough information to keep this man alive. Hmm. And so he learns of their plan. And and it says day and night they kept close watching the city gates in order to kill him. And so uh, he didn't know what to do. And he's got to get out of the city. So how is he going to get out? And so he ends up getting lowered down in a in a, in a basket by night. So I, I, I picture this. I, I picture a basket. I, I picture ropes tied to the basket. I, I picture these guys like lowering him down at night. It's very undignified. It's like, you know, it's it's like not a glamorous, spectacular exit. You know, mm. it's not like some cool Mission Impossible thing or like <laughs> where he's entering on, you know, on a with a, uh, you know, parachute or something and landing right on the X or something like that and then gets out. It's not cool, actually. It's very humiliating. Yeah. But this is the whole thing. Paul, Paul is going to be physically humiliated, mm. physically humiliated again and again. Um, but that humiliation is going to be the basis of his powerful ministry. So he goes from there, it says in verse 26, uh, to Jerusalem and attempts to join the disciples. Yeah. What role does Barnabas play in Saul's life sure. at this early stage? And what does this teach us about gifts and different roles in the body of Christ? Sure. So he comes to Jerusalem and he's trying to join them. He's like, hey, I'm, I want to be part. And it's like, no, 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 no. We, well, I mean, because again, the last we saw him in Jerusalem, he's destroying the church. He's the very same one. And so also I would imagine there was a certain amount of secrecy Mm. to where and when they met in order that they not get arrested. So I would imagine it's it's pretty hard to believe. But Barnabas is the one who puts an arm around around, um, Paul and says what happened in Damascus and how he boldly preached and how he faced persecution. And no, he's the real deal. And so remember, Barnabas isn't even his name. Joseph was his name. Um, but it's his nickname, and that's what he was known as, son of encouragement. He's just an encouraging person. Uh, he's like a, a, a glue person that holds everything together and just sweetens things. And so without Barnabas, Saul isn't joining the church at Jerusalem. He's not fellowshipping with them there. And it also created a tremendous bond of affection mm. and friendship between Paul and Barnabas that we'll see in the first missionary journey in Acts 13 and on into 14. So he uh, he told everyone uh, what had happened, Saul's conversion story and how the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so they opened their hearts to him and they believed Barnabas. Now we almost have this out of the frying pan into the mm-hmm. fire situation here because he goes from the Jews plotting to kill him in Damascus to mm-hmm. here the Hellenists seeking to kill him. Right. So we see that in verses 28 through 30, this next trial in Saul's life and how the Lord delivers him. Right. Why do you think people are constantly trying to kill Saul? I, I just go back to that that statement I just made in John 8. Uh, I think it's Satan. Mm. Um, and Satan is on this. He's a murderer anyway. But, you know, the image I've used before from my growing up years, and I don't know, I haven't noticed this in recent years, but maybe they still do it, where where um, post offices will put the, the pictures, the mug shots of the top 10 most wanted. So these are people on the lam, hmm. you know, from the FBI or something like that. And we, the, you know, I've, I've always pictured in the demonic post office, all 10 pictures would have been Paul. 
I mean, he's our, our he's priority number one through 10. Mm. I mean, the number one thing we need to do on earth right now is to kill this man. We've got to shut him down, but that's that's how they are. And and also, it just it just shows the evil of Satan's lying kingdom. You know, here is is uh, Jesus showing great power and raising Lazarus from the dead, and so they plot to kill Lazarus. They're just murderers, and and they instead they should be repenting and listening and learning and being transformed. But they want to kill, and so that's fundamentally the nature of Satan. I think Satan's behind that murder. But also they have it in their hearts as well. They, they, um, you know, they have a debate, and uh, with the Grecian Jews, my guess is the same group of people that Stephen had debated with. Mm. Only then, Saul was part of the group. Now he is debating against them, and they want to kill him. So again, this becomes known to those around mm-hmm. Saul, and they send him off to Tarsus. Sure. What effect did Saul's removal to Tarsus have on the church of Judea, and what descriptors does Luke give of the church's life at this point? Right. I think an important verse we need to understand, I think it's in Matthew ten twenty three, where Jesus sends out his disciples two by two, and he says, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to the next. Hmm. Um, it's true that you should rejoice and be glad when you're being persecuted, but you don't have to stand there and take a beating. And so the idea is wherever and whenever you cannot get beaten or killed, do it. Try to stay alive. Hmm. And so we'll see this later also in, in the book of Acts where in Jerusalem, the Roman uh, seizes Paul from the rabid fanatical crowd and stretches him out uh, to beat him. And Paul's not like, oh, good, another chance to store up treasure in heaven. No, no, no. He's like, wait, wait, wait. Is it lawful for you to be beating a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried yet? Oh, that stopped it right there. So the point is, wherever you can avoid getting crushed and beaten and arrested, do so. So the brothers ship Paul out and send him off to uh, to, uh, Tarsus and and later we're going to see Barnabas in chapter 12 going to get Saul, so that he can help teach uh, in in Antioch. But in the meantime, the church has a break. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like I almost read verse 31 like a sigh of relief. Like Paul's a massive catalyst. Everything, Everywhere he goes, things really get juiced up. Yeah. Conversions are happening. Persecution's happening. Revival's happening. Just teaching's happening. And then he leaves. It's like, oh, you know. And it's a great, great time when he's there, but it just the persecution was ramping up. And so the church had a time of peace. But then it says so very sweetly, it was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and it grew in numbers living in the fear of the Lord. What a great statement mm. of how the church is healthy and growing. Now, verse 32 is where we see this significant shift of focus back mm-hmm. to Peter. And like you mentioned, that's really through uh, chapter 12. Yep. Uh, any more that needs to be said about why Luke arranges his work this way, going from Peter to Paul, back to Peter, and then mm-hmm. focusing on Paul to the end? Right. Well, one of the one of the movements that's happening in the book of Acts that we'll see, it's not the central theme, but it is, I think, an important theme, is the movement of the body of Christ— of genuine believers in Jesus from Jew only to Jew plus Gentile to predominantly Gentile. Mm -hmm. That's the movement we're going to see in the book of Acts. And so we already see this here. Peter is the apostle to the circumcision. He's the apostle to the Jews. Uh, Paul, now converted here in this chapter, will be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so the the preaching is still focused on, on Jewish work only. 
the expansion is going to happen in chapter 10 with Peter, the apostle to the Jews. He's the one that's going to go lead Cornelius, the mm. Roman centurion, and his family to Christ. But then it's all like a, he's going to hand the baton off to, of the Gentile work over to Paul. And so we're going to go, meanwhile, back at Peter, and we're going to follow Peter for a while, and it's the way the Holy Spirit led Luke to write the book of Acts. All right, so picking up in verse 32 then, what does this account teach us about Peter's lifestyle and ministry in those days? And what's the significance of the fact that the believers here were called saints? So we don't have a lot of information about Peter's life. Um, Paul, when he talks about his rights as an apostle, says, don't we have the right to take along with us a believing wife as does Cephas or Peter? So she's not mentioned, but it could be that Peter... Uh, who whose home base was Caesarea, um, had left fishing now, physical fishing, and was now just doing ministry, traveling about from place to place, preaching, teaching, and in this case, doing miracles. And uh, again, we don't have any mention of his wife, but he's moving around from, from place to place. And so in this case, he's in a place called Lydda, and then uh, he'll be in Joppa and just different places. So he's just going around ministering. Um, and it says that he go, he's going to visit the saints. Now, the saints are, are just those that are set apart unto God to be holy. Specifically, the word saint means holy one, set apart for holiness. And so he's visiting the believers there. So some of the work is evangelistic, but some of the work is going to be discipleship and pastor-teacher type work. Hmm. So we see that even at that early stage. How does Luke describe Aeneas's plight and the method by which Peter heals him? What's the significance of Peter's statement, Jesus Christ heals you? Yeah, so Aeneas is paralyzed. He's a paralytic. He's been bedridden for eight years. And Peter says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. And uh, Aeneas gets up. And so uh, just given, giving full glory and credit to Jesus hmm. All right, so the same thing that he did earlier when asked in Acts chapter 4 about the healing of the lame beggar uh, in the temple gate called Beautiful in Acts 3. So um, he says, if you're asking us how this miracle was done, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Hmm. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So he wants to get the name out there. So Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And I don't just want you, Aeneas, to be physically healed. I want you to be spiritually healed. I want you to rise up physically, but I also want you to rise up spiritually and walk in your new faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I think that's why he says Jesus Christ heals you. Now, we've talked before about the ultimate purpose of signs and wonders, miracles, healings in the book of Acts. What does the outcome of this healing in verse 35 remind us about the purpose of healings in this book? Well, again and again in the book of Acts, we're going to see healings open the door for, uh, for preaching and for conversion. And so it displays the authority of the preacher, in this case, Peter, and even more importantly, the authority of Jesus Christ, the one who did the healing, and of the message of the gospel, which is the only power of God for the salvation of those who believe. This is it. So the, the, um, the miracle gathers a crowd, displays power, authenticates the messenger, and even more importantly, authenticates the message and its Lord, Jesus. Hmm. So that's what the miracle achieves. 
Now, verse 36 to the end of the chapter, we turn from this interaction with Aeneas to uh, Peter and Tabitha or Dorcas. What does Luke tell us about Tabitha or Dorcas and her ministry? Yeah, so the name means gazelle, my footnote tells me. I wouldn't know that any other way. Um, (laughs) But there's, I think Tabitha sounds prettier than Dorcas, just my thought. At any rate, uh, what we learn about this lady is that she's one of those one of those women, one of those people in a church that's an unsung hero, the kind of person that everyone loves, but she's not an upfront um, person. She's not a leader of the women's ministry there or any of that kind of thing. So she's not like Priscilla, Aquila's wife, who is just very knowledgeable in the scripture. No, mm. she's she is the kind that does hidden good works, uh, working with her hands, making clothes, making garments for people. And just the kind of person that when she's taken, everyone deeply misses her. And so she got sick and died. Um, and her body, it says, was taken upstairs and prepared for burial. And she's being, being um, prepared. But then they also go get Peter. Hmm. And they're like, I wonder if this same apostle who could do these miracles, maybe there's a possibility that he might be able to raise her from the dead. Yeah, it's interesting. That brings a question to mind. What is the fact that the disciples in Joppa sent for Peter rather than raise her from the dead themselves Mm -hmm. show about the limitations of miracles in the apostolic era? Right. I just don't think that there was anywhere near the number of miracles that there was in Jesus' day. I think Jesus is just unique Mm -hmm. in terms of the quantity, definitely, and the quality of the miracles. Um, So, But quantity especially. It was just river, just thousands of people healed. Um, and that the workload was amazing because he, he tended to do them one at a time. That was Jesus. I think with the apostles, it's more occasional. I would call it occasional. Uh, the, the, the spirit would be there. The time was right. The circumstances were right. And a miracle would happen. Hmm. And so this is remember, death is the final enemy. And so there's going to be sickness and injury and death right on through. It just wasn't even Jesus' purpose to banish sickness and, and death and injuries forever. That will come at the end of the world at the resurrection. And so uh, also it seems that signs and wonders marked apostles, marked them as apostles. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't mark something, someone with something that everyone's doing. Sure. If you get a population of 50,000 people and all of them have red hair, and it's like, well, go see the guy with red hair. It's like, there's no marking. Which one? How do Which I one? know? They're yeah. all like that. But mm-hmm. if you have a very unique individual, um, it's they're marked out. So I would say that this points to um, the general exclusivity of miracles to apostles. Exclusive would be too strong because, you know, we already know that, uh, that, um, Philip did miracles and he was not an apostle. So it does happen from time to time, but normally it's apostles and even then not that common. What does verse 39 demonstrate about the effect of Dorcas's ministry on the people? And how might this highlight the significance of all Christians and their ministries, male and female, young and old? Yeah, so people are called to do different things. And so Peter's called to get up in front of thousands of people and preach the gospel. Uh, uh, Dorcas is quietly behind the scenes making garments for poor people and um, and loving them and caring caring for them, just working with their hands and doing things. And, and so the widows in particular, you think about the way that churches, healthy churches minister one to the other. And widows uh, gather together, and here's this woman who mm. uh, was constantly working hard for them and making things for, for people. And so they were weeping, and they missed her, and they didn't want her to be gone. And, and so they're sad, and they're showing Peter evidence of her good work. She's well-remembered. 
And what actual procedure does Peter follow in praying for Dorcas? And how would you characterize Peter's behavior in dealing with the believers in Joppa and with Dorcas? Right. So first he sends them all out of the room. And this is similar to Jesus. Um, uh, actually, in that case, he did, t- did take Peter, James, and John with him when he raised that little girl. He said Talitha Kum, um, but her parents. But everybody else is sent out. So go on out. And so this is a private, quiet moment. Um, this whole thing reminds me also of both Elijah and Elisha who mm. raised the dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's that sense. There's a f- very strong feeling of Elijah and Elisha here for me. And um, so she, he gets down on his knees and he prays. And it's just very, very uh, dignified and quiet. The getting on the knees is something that's mentioned. Also, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says, for this reason I kneel before the Father. So the kneeling and praying is important. Also, Daniel in Daniel 6, three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So at any rate, he prays, and then he just simply turns toward this dead woman and talks to her. And so in the midst of that prayer time, God told him what to do. He followed it. And then the power of the Lord was there to raise her from the dead. Mm. And he said to her, Tabitha, get up. It was just that simple. And she opened her eyes and got up. Wow. Yeah. You know, once again, in the final two verses, Luke shows the outcome of this healing. How is it similar to the other accounts of healings we've already seen? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage we've looked at? Well, the miracle um, is is um, spread around. Everybody hears about it. Same thing in verse 35 uh, with Aeneas' miracle. Uh, all those who, who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So again, here, um, this became known all over Joppa. And again, many people believed in the Lord. And so Peter's there to uh, to continue, and he stayed for some time in the home of a tanner named Simon, and that's going to be the basis of the ministry we'll see in the next chapter. Hmm. So what do we learn from it? We just see the power of God in the miracles, little glimpses into what the early church was like with the apostles in the apostolic age, and how, the uh, again, always the word is spreading, 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 more and more and more and more people coming to the Lord. Well, this has been episode 19 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We would invite you to join us next time for episode 20, entitled The First Gentile Converts to Christ, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 48. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.